Good morning. Our junior highs are heading out on cue, so if you're uh, in that uh, junior high age group, you can head out with them. Do the rest of the service with Sarah. Uh, I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but uh, maybe you've found, you find out from someone that you're being invited to a dinner. Uh, somebody tells you, hey, we're going to dinner, and you, you might want to know if you're being invited, who's inviting you, who's hosting the dinner, and then you might want to know, you know, who else is going, because your level of excitement with it is, you know, who, who, who's hosting, because that's going to determine what, what the space is going to be like, what the meal is going to be like, what the atmosphere is, um, and of course, you know, who's your company at that meal. Now, I don't know if you've ever had this experience, if you've ever been invited to a wedding, and it's maybe somebody you, you know sort of well, but you don't know everybody there, and you get to reception where you're heading to that, you know, that beautifully decorated poster uh, the, the, the bride had spent all kinds of time putting together and, uh, and, and, and you're looking and you're, what do you, like, who's at my table, right? Like, and you might look at that list and supposing, I don't know if you went and say you saw, you know, you were table number 10 or whatever and you saw your name there and then you saw some, some other names there that you were, you were surprised. Maybe some, some really people that you think are really cool or really important. Maybe even some famous people and you might think, wow, like, I didn't know they knew that. That's fantastic. You'd think that would reflect really great on the host, you know, whoever was at that table, and it would probably, you'd start to feel, hey, I'm at, the, you know, there at, this, I'm at this table too. It's going to reflect pretty good on you, right? If the, if the people at your table, was at my table, reflects on the host, reflects on me. Now, there might be some names that on the table that you don't recognize, or maybe some that you do, but you, you're like, how did my mother-in-law get at this table with me? Uh, you know, there might be some names there or people that you think like, oh, I didn't know they knew them, and maybe now you're thinking a little less of the host because of who's on that table, and now you're thinking, how could they put me at that table? How did we, honey, what are we like, let's, and you're looking for other tables and empty seats. Now, you know, this maybe you might say, well, this is just kind of a thing if you're going out for dinner or, you know, you have to endure a dinner or a, a, a wedding or something with people you may not like, but those of you, how many of you who, uh, were either born outside of North America or your parents were? Okay, yeah, most of this church, right? Anywhere outside of North America, you might think I'm making a big deal of this dinner thing, but really anywhere outside of North America, I mean, if you, if you were from, from Asia or where, where my parents are from, South Asia, uh, South America, Europe, like the dinner table is a big deal. The meal, I remember a friend of mine who uh, quit a job here uh, in, in uh, Canada and he went to work in Europe and he bought a minivan there, his family guy bought a minivan, and one of the things he noticed was there was no cup holders in the, and, and in the minivan, he said part of it was because in Europe, you eat breakfast with your family. Like you eat breakfast at home. You don't eat in the car as you're going. The meal uh, occasion is a very significant one. It's not just sort of uh, functional, sort of taking food into the body to have energy for the day. Those of you that work in business and in international business, so you know the deal gets done over dinner. That, and, and if you are in another culture, another place where you're invited into someone's home, how you act in that place, it's a big deal how you treat their hospitality. Why? Because the meal um, occasion and the dinner table itself, if we can use that, is a symbol of relationship. It is the place uh, where relationship happens. It is a place of love and exchange. It's not just about food. This is where people come together to be in relationship. And we have to understand that because uh, the, the cultural context of the story of God, which we're saying is our story, uh, was a culture where the meal table, the dinner table, the act of eating together was a significant sign of being in relationship with one another. Which is why it's so interesting when Jesus began to, to teach and he was beginning to tell people, he, you know, one of the things he announced 
that was that the kingdom of God was at hand, or the kingdom of God was here. And one of the primary dominant sort of um, explanations of what the kingdom meant was that God was the head or the father of a household, and that he was inviting people in to be in relationship with him, to be in that household, in a sense, to eat with him. With him. And one of the significant acts of Jesus was that he demonstrated what God would be like when he came to earth, and he was always eating and drinking with all kinds of people. Now, there were some who didn't like the people that Jesus was eating and drinking with. And it wasn't just that, oh, he's sort of keeping bad company. It was that they felt like he was saying, well, this is what the kingdom of God is about, eating and drinking with these kind of people. And there were a certain group that said, hey, that, that cannot be. You cannot say that the kingdom of God includes people like that at God's dinner table. And we're going to read a passage uh, where that comes to a head this morning in the Gospel of Luke, the biography that we're using to study the life of Jesus. Reading from Luke uh, chapter 15, uh, just the first two verses. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him, that's Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Now, just a bit of context for you. Tax collectors and sinners. This was a description of uh, the worst of the worst. The tax collectors were the people that everybody hated. They were Jews who had sold out to the man, in a sense. They were collecting taxes for Rome. And Rome had a heavy taxation system. You think the Canadian government taxes us a lot. These guys had taxes for everything. Um, <clears throat> not only that, the tax collectors... They wanted a job not because they got paid well from Rome, but because they could exact a bit more off the top from their Jewish um, people. From their, so these are their own people who were basically exacting even more than Rome was, skimming off the top so they could make themselves rich. So everybody hated them. They were the dregs of society. Nobody of any kind of reputation would associate with them. And the sinners were the, were the people dubbed by the religious people as people who didn't obey the law. They were, um, they were prostitutes. They were people who went to prostitutes. They were people who had no interest in going to the synagogue, had no interest in keeping the law. They ate all kinds of food they weren't supposed to eat. And so these were people that the religious people said they don't belong. And so this, the scribes and the Pharisees, the people who were the religious people who were the God experts, were looking at this man, Jesus, who was supposed to be um, God's messenger and was talking about God a lot and God's kingdom and God's household. And he was like, how, they were like, how could this be? We all like the idea of being at God's dinner table, but we don't like the people that you're saying are going to be at the table with us. They didn't like the people that Jesus was including at his own dinner table and by implication at the table of God. And so they had a major problem with that. And in response to that, Jesus tells them this story. A few verses later in Luke, uh, chapter, uh, verse 11. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. 
I will sit out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, so make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him, but he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and, you, and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was lost, was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Now, whether this story is very familiar to you or whether you heard it for the first time, it bears a little bit of retelling because of just some of the cultural distance between when it was written and now. These two sons that belong to this father seem to live in a fairly wealthy uh, estate because they have hired hands, they have servants. The younger son, who was probably in his teens, says to the father, I want what's coming to me. Now, this is a stunning opening to this story for a Near Eastern audience because it would have been a huge, uh, really an ultimate sign of offense for a son to say to his father, essentially, I wish you were dead. Like, I can't wait for what's coming to me, so I want you to just give me what's coming to me now. I don't really care so much about you. I just want what you have, so, what's coming to me, so can you divide it up? And it says, he says he divided his property between them. And the word property actually in the Greek is bios, which is life. In a sense, he divided his life between them. In a sense, he was asking for his father, said like, I want, that's what's more valuable to me than your life is what you have and what's gonna be mine. So can you give it to me? So he gives it to him and it says that the, he gathered together stuff, which actually the Greek word means he, he turned it into cash. So we don't know exactly what that means, but certainly he sold a bunch of goods and possessions that would have been his father's that he gave to him. And then he probably would have sold part of the property that, he, that they were on to, so now there's dramatic change going on in this household, major um, upheaval and a change for all of them forever. Because the younger son has essentially cut their property in half and said, this is what I want, and he leaves. Says he goes to Vegas, you know, the one-armed bandits and the prostitutes and whatever, maybe he went to a Cirque du Soleil, you know. It's gone, the money's gone in a short period of time. And then something he didn't anticipate, a famine comes, so now he's totally destitute. And we know it got so bad for this guy because no self-respecting Jew would ever take a job feeding pigs. Pigs were the ultimate, sort of the unclean animal for a Jew. And so there he is in this place, even thinking that he wanted to eat some of the food that they have. And it says he comes to a sense and says, okay, this is bad. I can certainly 
find a place better than this. And he says, my father's hired men were, were better off than this. Now, I understand there were three kind of levels in the household, in a Jewish household, in a place like this. First were the sons who worked for the father. Now, they worked, but they owned what they were working on, and they were, in a sense, looking after the family business, which they were going to receive. So it was a good position. They were working in the home. Everybody, his sons worked with their fathers um, to tend the family business in an agrarian culture, but they were going to receive the benefits of that. The next one down would, was, was called a slave. Now, a slave lived in the house. A slave was not a son. They would not get any inheritance, but they got room and board. So they would work, and uh, their payment was that their lives would be looked after. And in a kind of subsistence living culture, that was good. You had a job, you had a place to sleep, and you had food on the table every day. Now, the third down was the, was the hired hand. The hired hand was a day laborer. Only there if they needed the work. It wasn't a consistent job. It was sort of the lowest uh, on the rung, on the pecking order in the family business. But the son says, hey, even the hired hands, even the guys the worst off have it better than this. I'm going to go back to my father. Here's my plan of his plan. He knows he's never going to be a son again. He knows what he did was so offensive that even if his father wanted to let him back, the rest of the family, the culture, the families would have lived in compounds together. The rest of the larger family would have said, no way. He disrespected you publicly. He's not coming back as a son. So the son knows that. That's not even on the table. Even the fact that he would come back is, is, a, is a bold step. It says, while he was a long way off, the father saw him, which means what? The father was looking for him. How many days, how many times did he go out to that front step watching? And then even more stunning than what the opening of the story would have been to a Jewish audience. Jesus says the father ran. No older Jewish man ran. They didn't bare their legs, okay? They weren't wearing those cute little running room shorts out on the, on the weekend. They never bared their legs. He would have pulled up his coat so he wouldn't have tripped on it, and he runs to his son, the son who basically had publicly shamed him in front of his whole family. He throws himself on him, and he starts to kiss his neck. The picture here that Jesus is painting is like of a Roman soldier coming home from war, a hero's return where the loved ones throw themselves on them. The father throws himself on the son. He's kissing him, welcoming him home. The son starts into his speech, cuts him off. Says, get the robe and the ring and the sandals. And those, the robe and the ring especially would have been signs of sonship. In other words, you are back. It's like you never left. And then he says, kill the fattened calf. They didn't eat meat every meal. It was the one animal that would have been kept if a guest of honor showed up or a huge celebration was in order. And the father says, this is it. This is the day that I've been waiting for. The guest of honor is back. Stunning. Party. And then the older son comes in from the field and says, you know, what's with the beats? Who's, what's going on here? Comes in. He actually doesn't come in. He asks another servant, hey, what's going on? The servant tells him, and it says he refuses to go in. He won't go in the house. The father hears about it, comes out, pleads with him, says, no way, I'm not going in. And the story ends there. That's a parable. Jesus was telling, it's a fictitious story, but the story ends there. We don't know what happened with the older son. Now, Jesus was telling this story because those two sons were in the crowd that day. There, were the, there was the younger sons, we already know, the sinners and the tax collectors. The ones who had thrown off religion, 
who were not interested in the rules, who were not interested in being good, obedient, observant Jews, had lived like the younger son, were in fact still living like the younger son, concerned about wealth, partying, having a good time. That was the younger son that was there that day. But the older son was there too. The religious leaders, the ones who looked down on the younger sons. And what's interesting about this story is, though the two sons seemed so different, they were in fact very much the same. Actually, the parable historically has been called the prodigal son, but it's a misnomer because it's about two sons. And the two sons, though they acted very differently, were the same in this one very important way. Both of them wanted the father's things and not the father. Both sons wanted the father's things and not the father. It's easy to see with the younger son. He didn't care that he was at the dinner table with the father every day, not interested in being in relationship with his father. And he asks to get out, takes all the money with him, goes, blows it all in Vegas, and comes home begging. He didn't want the father, he wanted the father's things. But the older son was the same. Outwardly, obedient, observant, dutiful, close to home. But how do we know that he wanted the father's things and not the father? Because what happened when this all came to a head? Finally, it all comes out, right? I've slaved for you all these years. The word slave is, was the Greek word doulos, which was that second person in the pecking order. In other words, I'm not your son. He, he was at the father's dinner table every day, but not as a son, as a slave. I work, you give me room and board. That's how it worked. He didn't see himself as a son. He was close to home and just as far away from the father as the younger son. He wanted the father's things and not the father. They were the same, even though outwardly they looked so different. And Jesus is telling this story because both groups of people are sitting in front of him. Some that openly rejected religion, wasted all their money on sinful living, and others who had done everything right, but ultimately were the same in their posture towards God. You owe me because I live like this. I don't live like that. They had graded themselves on the bell curve of humanity and they knew where the sinners and tax collectors stood and they knew where they stood and they said, God, we get a better grade, don't we? Jesus calling out both sons in front of them. And now maybe we can relate. It was Timothy Keller and he wrote the book uh, as a pastor that I kind of, he's a mentor, he doesn't know me, but he's my mentor. Um, <laughs> he wrote a book called The Prodigal God to explain this parable in a way that I had read it many, many times. I had never seen it through this light. And he essentially says like, that is basically the two ways that every person, one of two ways that every person relates to the Father. There are some of us, some of you maybe in this room early on in your life or whatever religious upbringing you had, you threw it off. You said, I'm not gonna live like that. I don't need those rules. I don't need that way. I'm not, I don't even care about what that gets me. I don't need, uh, you know, you, look at, you looked at religious people, that, that's stupid, I'm done with this. And so you decided to live life by your own terms. I'm gonna decide what I think is best. I'm gonna live for what I think is most valuable. I'm gonna put my money and my energy. I don't care whether the father wants relationship with me or who the father is, this is how I'm gonna live. Others of us are like the older son. And, and, and you use words like, oh, I've never strayed. Or, oh, I've always been a Christian. 
Oh, I've oh, and you and you might not say it out loud, but you look down on the younger sons, those who have done bad things and and kind of made foolish decisions, but you've never made those decisions. But in your heart, you're like the older son. And it gets revealed in your own life when things go badly for you. Who do you get mad at when things go badly for you? God. Hey, okay, other people, but me? Why, why am I doing all this stuff if I'm not getting anything? That's what the young, older son said, right? I've slaved for you all these years. How could you treat me like this? It is, a, what was the older son's problem? Injustice. How could you treat that one like that and me like this? Every one of us has a posture towards God that is like the irreligious younger brother or the religious older brother. And both, one of the father's things and not the father, both were far away from the father. One was far away literally as well. One was close to home and yet miles away. Neither of them wanted or cared for the relationship at the dinner table of the father. One openly rejected, the other one quietly lived by his own standard of right and wrong. And they were both exposed. The younger son, financially, morally, socially bankrupt. The older son, hard, judgmental, unloving, and essentially just like the younger brother, just as rebellious. Both sons were in the crowd. Jesus is telling the story to both. But you see, the prodigal son is not a misnomer just because this is a story of two sons. Keller suggests that the story should be called the prodigal God because the word prodigal means reckless spender. Jesus told this story to set up who? The father. He tell, it's a story of a father who is so reckless with his grace to the point that everybody in the crowd would have been sitting there thinking, how could this be God? First of all, he allows the younger son to openly shame him and reject him and walk away. To use up, in a sense, half of his life and spend it away. And when he comes home, he treats him like a hero lavishes on him grace. He kills the fattened calf for the, for the, that was saved for a celebration. And he knew. And then the older son, who was equally disrespectful to him. Why? Because the picture is actually of the, fa the father having to beg the son, the, the supposedly obedient son, and him refusing to come in. And then openly talking back to him. This would have been, un you know, this happens all the time now. It's unheard of in a Near Eastern culture. Both of them were shamed, and yet neither of them could squelch the Father's grace. Both of them had a problem with the reckless grace of the Father. Reckless, it was uncontrolled. The younger son had his plan, he was gonna control it. He knew the terms, he's like, okay, Father, I figured it all out, I know I did all this stuff, and I'm gonna be the hired hand, and he's, he's, he doesn't even let him finish. He puts a coat on him and brings it. The younger son must have been stunned. It was grace that he couldn't control that was pouring onto him. The older son wanted to control the favor too. He did not like the father being so reckless with his grace. And yet neither of them could come to the father's table if they didn't get his grace. 
And that's what Jesus was telling this story for. Oh, you sons and daughters, older sons and daughters, younger sons and daughters, they were all sitting in front of him. The whole group, right? He set up the whole thing. Tax collectors and sinners, Pharisees and teachers of the law, younger brothers, older brothers, they were all there. He was saying, I need you to know something, not just about you, but about the Father. And you cannot come to the Father's table, which he is inviting you to, if you don't get his grace. If you don't get his grace. Some of us are like younger brothers when we come to the Father. We are constantly trying to earn our way. We are constantly aware of what we have not done. The words that ring in our ears that was already mentioned to us in the, in the worship this morning. What we hear, what we see in our lives is the foolish things we have done. And perhaps some of us are living with the pain of the choices we made. Financially, socially, morally feeling bankrupt. And we can't imagine how the Father would just let us back in or let us in at all. And we come with our plan and we struggle with the reckless grace of the Father. We don't see him as a father like that. And yet we know this is what the Father was like all along. The sons were at the table with him and they didn't see it. All this time, some of us have been in church our whole lives and we still are trying to earn our way back to the love of God. You know how you know it? Because when you sin and you fall and that thing that you said you were never gonna do again, you feel devastated. You can't bring yourself together again because what were you trusting in before that allowed you to be at the table? Your good works, now they're gone. I wonder, you know, we, we don't know it was a fictitious story that Jesus told, but I wonder in the days and weeks that followed if the younger brother, as he comes back and maybe he accepted the Father's grace, but what happened if he failed again? What happened if he would ever you know, have a sharp tongue towards his father. Probably in an instant he was, he was tempted to throw off the robe, take off the ring, and run away. Because he couldn't imagine that the father would allow him to continue to be at the table. Some of us are like younger brothers. We have still have not understood the grace of the father. And you cannot eat with him if you don't get it. That it is his reckless grace poured out on you. And some of us are like older brothers. And that comes out when we feel like we have been wronged. We have this standard. We look down on other people. We judge others. We're angry at the way others have treated us. There isn't forgiveness in our lives because we don't get the forgiveness we've received because we run a meritocracy even with God. We think our standing with God is because of who we are and therefore we expect everybody else to have a standing with us because of who they are. Unforgiveness in our own lives is a sign that we don't get the forgiveness that was meant to be received. So we are not reckless with grace with others because we have not received the reckless love of God. We want a meritocracy, but do we really? Younger brothers, older brothers. And Jesus says, all of us find ourselves somewhere in there. Sometimes we're younger brothers and over time we become older brothers. We forget the grace that brought us home and we start to live by the standards of the household and we look down on those who don't and we live our lives like that. And Jesus says, you don't understand. You can't be at the table if you don't get the grace of the Father. The younger brother, it took him a long time to get it. It was a hard road. It was a painful one. 
The older brother, he never really got it. We don't know. Why? What was the issue with the older brother? Let's empathize with him for a moment before we judge him. Why was he so upset at the father? Because who was paying for the party for the younger brother? The older brother. Everything that was left in the estate was the older brother's. The younger brother had nothing left. All that was left was the older brother's. And he, was, he couldn't believe that the father was spending his money on him. He refused. And he knew, standing outside that door, every day from now on for the rest of his life, every meal I will pay for, every piece of clothing he wears will be out of my pocket. It's all mine. And now because of the grace of the father, it's costing me. That's what was too hard to take. It was all coming out of him. And he refused. The grace of the father was costing the elder brother something, and it was a price he did not want to pay. Even culturally in that home, what needed to happen, what was supposed to happen if the father was going to do this, was the older brother had to act, in a sense, on behalf of the family and welcome the, uh, the younger brother home because the, older, the father was going to die, and the estate would be the older brother's. Now it's in, in its entirety. And he was mad. He was so upset that the grace of the father was going to cost him. The younger brother didn't have an older brother who was willing to pay the price of the father's grace. But you and I do. They, they would have never known this. But the apostle Paul later on in the letter describes Jesus as what? Our elder brother. It's a title of Jesus we don't really get, but a, that a story like this helps us understand what does it mean that Christ was our elder brother? He was the brother who was willing to pay the, the price for the Father's grace. Jesus, on the cross, allowed the grace of the Father to flow to us. The older brother in the story is standing outside refusing to be a part or allow. And who knows what he would have done after the father passed away. Maybe he's saying, I'm only gonna do this for a couple of years. He refused to let the grace of the father be costly for him so that the younger brother could come home. But you and I have an older brother who was willing. Not only willing, joyful to say, Father, if that's the kind of God you are, I, and that's the kind of God I'm going to be, that the grace of our older brother, Jesus Christ, flowing from the Father comes to us at the cost of our older brother, Jesus. And that in a sense, all of us are meant to see that ultimately we are younger brothers. Whether we are irreligious, have rejected God, no interest, live life our own way, or whether we feel like we've done things by the book our whole lives, all of us need to realize irreligion and religion will lead you away from the dinner table of the Father. It will use you up. It will leave you bankrupt, hardened, proud, empty. And at the cost of the older brother's life, our elder brother Jesus, we were able to be brought in to the table of the Father 
and brought home. In a sense, the one who was close to home, Jesus, was rejected so that we who were far away, whether in our hearts or literally far away, whether you've been in church your whole life and yet in your heart far away, or whether you literally have left, that all of us, older brothers and younger brothers, are brought home and are brought in by the work of Jesus. That's the gospel. That is the good news that the irreligious and the religious are rescued by Jesus. The older brother willing and delighted to allow the grace of the Father to flow to us at the cost of his own life. So that we had the older brother that that younger brother never had, but so desperately needed. So what does that mean for us now who live that way? I want you to look who's at your table. Who's at the table with you? In a sense, as you come to this passage of scripture and you see the place, uh, the, the, the guest list, who's on that guest list? First of all, Jesus is saying, see your father, the reckless giver of grace the one who cannot be controlled, who does not work on a meritocracy. Whether we are a younger brother or an older brother, to see the reckless grace of the Father as given to us, this is whose table we eat at every day. This is the center, in a sense, of our home, is the reckless love of the Father. The table, the dinner table, was the center of the Near Eastern home. And in a sense, it is the center of our lives. And at that table sits the Father whose defining love and grace defines our love, our lives forever. That is the center of our lives as Christians, as worshipers of this living God, more than anything, as we said a few weeks ago, more than anything, uh, any other of his titles, that he is creator, that he is sovereign, that he is the Lord of heaven's armies, that he is um, the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. He is Father. Jesus was trying to help them understand who God is. This is the one who sits at the table in the center of your home. Who else is on that guest list? It's you. You are at that table with the Father. Whether you think you deserve to be there or can't believe, you were invited. Some of us need to see in our mind's eye again that we are invited to the table with the Father. No matter what we have done, whether we have been far away literally or far away in our hearts, that we are welcomed in, that you must see yourself as being in relationship with the Father at the table. Who else is on the guest list? Who else is at your table? Let's say your brother or sister in Christ. You know when the, when the, when the older son is reaming out the father for his grace, he won't even bring himself to say my brother. What does he say? He says, this son of yours, it's not my brother. And that's why I say at the table with the father and you is your brother or sister in Christ. Who has made terrible decisions? whose foolishness has cost you. Look, every one of us in our lives ha have people whose decisions have cost us and hurt us. And if some of those people are your brother and sister in Christ, 
If you are struggling to see, if you are still holding a grudge, let me say it this way, you are not seeing them at the table with you. If you are still angry with them, if you are still waiting for, I'm sorry, and it hasn't come yet, and it angers you, frustrates you, hurts you, you are not seeing them at the table because you can't imagine the Father would give them grace. You're holding out for judgment. You want restitution. You want justice, which means you cannot see them at the table. And Jesus is saying, hey, look around. It's not just you at the table with the Father. It's the person that has offended you and hurt you. Maybe the one you get into bed with every night. That you are struggling to forgive. And Jesus says, hey, they are at the table with you in Christ. Can you see it? And then your elder brother Jesus is at the table. The one who we must continue to look to every time we lose sight of who God is. And remember that if he is there, it means that what he has done has made it possible for every one of us to be there. And so the question I have for you is, if that's the guest list, if that's who's at the table with you, who are you struggling to see? Are you struggling to see and know the love of a father like this? Maybe because of your own father, because of whatever somebody taught you about God as you were growing up. Are you struggling to see the father as the reckless giver of grace? Maybe are you struggling to see yourself there? Struggling to see, I don't know if I belong. Are you struggling to see that brother or sister that has hurt you, that, that they really do belong at the table? Who are you struggling to see? Or is it Jesus that you need to see in a fresh way in terms of that, that he is our elder brother, that he has done everything possible to bring us together to the Father? And here's our, our Trinitarian ending. <laughs> the Father and the Son are at the table. The Spirit is the one that opens your eyes to see. The Spirit is called in the Trinity the love that exists between the Father and the Son. The Spirit is the one that opens our eyes to see God, who He is, to experience the love of the reckless, spending God. To see Jesus as the one who has made it all possible by His life and His death and His resurrection. And so if you are struggling to see, we need to ask the Spirit to open our eyes. I'm going to pray for us in a moment that that would happen. But you know, the world needs more dinner tables like this. We live in a city, and maybe many of you have come from homes or are experiencing this in your home right now, where the table is a place of conflict, abuse, strife, chaos, or just empty chairs. That is the reality of the world we live in. And the good news of Jesus Christ come to us, come to you, into your own home, into this city is that this is the defining table of our lives. This is meant to be the table that is the center of our home. That the world needs the dinner table to be reclaimed by the Father and the Son through the work of the Spirit for us to see ourselves there with Him. For it to be a place of grace. Grace is the transforming agent in every family, in every home. And it only comes from the reckless spending God who gives it. And so I wanna pray for you because maybe your home, maybe your dinner table, maybe the home you grew up in was a place of conflict, brokenness, abuse, or just empty chairs. 
And that as, as I pray for you, for my home, and the homes in this city, that the dinner table that is meant to be the center of our lives, the Holy Spirit would open our eyes to see that conflict would begin to mend, that wounds would begin to heal, and that transformation would begin to take place from the dinner table out. Would you bow your heads with me? Holy Spirit, we ask that you would open our eyes to see you, God, the Trinitarian God, God the Father, the reckless spender, God the Son, the one who was willing to pay the price for us to receive the grace, God the Holy Spirit to open our eyes to say and proclaim, that's for me. We pray for a fresh vision of this table at the center of our lives, that God, whatever has defined our lives in the past, whether it was the broken, empty, conflicted tables of our home, whether it's our sin, our brokenness, or even a judgmental sort of proud bitterness, whatever we've been hanging on to, that instead what we begin to define our lives more and more is the Father whose table we sit at every day, where grace flows down, recklessly all over, for those of us that are younger brothers struggling to see that we belong, would we be washed today in a fresh experience of your grace to know that it is all that you have done and nothing that we have done and nothing can take that away from us. Whether we are older brothers, God, hanging on to grudges, frustrated, hurt, angry, that you would, the, the grace of the Father God would wash away bitterness and, a, and an obsession with what we call justice to see that we, just as the younger brothers, are far away and needed you to bring us home. We thank you for this amazing gospel that you, Jesus, determined to reveal to us not just by your teaching, but by your life and by your death. And so we celebrate today what you have done. In your name, Christ, amen.